Sorry, my throat's been, for some reason, dry today, more than usual. Well, I was so excited. I was standing on the diving board at the Flamingo Hotel in Miami Beach, and I was seven years old. My dad was in the pool, and I called him over to show him that I could jump from the diving board and into the pool just like my big brother Bob could. He came over and he encouraged me to dive in, and I did just what you would expect. I stepped up to the edge of the diving board and then backed away. And then I, Dad said, come on, come on, come on. I stepped up to the diving board and backed away. And I think I did that about three times, looking down at the, uh, how far down the, the water was and how deep it was. I kept backing away. But he urged me on, and after repeating that process, I walked tentatively to the end, and I jumped. I was aiming to hit the water close to the wall so that I could find something to hold on to quickly because I was a little concerned about whether I would sink to the bottom. So I hit the water, and I sank. But I bobbed back up, sputtering and so proud of my little self. I turned to my dad, who immediately lifted me out of the water and set me on the edge of the big pool, and he asked, does it hurt? And I said, not too much, with a sort of a wincing smile, wiping the blood off my chest where I had impacted the wall. I uh, didn't have too much confidence. I think probably that everybody can identify with a young and old with that unsure figure screwing up the courage to leap off that six-foot-high diving board into the pool. It wasn't the lowest board, it was the intermediate board. And I think you can kind of picture that in your mind without any trouble. The hesitation was the result of a divided mind. One part of my brain was saying, go ahead, jump. You can swim. The wall's right there, and your dad will help you. He won't let anything happen to you. You're just as brave and good at things as your big brother, no matter what he says. The other side was saying something, of course, much different. Look how far down that water is. You're, you're going to die if you jump in there. Don't jump. Look how deep it is. You can't swim that well. And by the time Dad gets to you, well, he'll just be pulling your lifeless carcass from the deep. Run away. You're just a little kid. Don't do it. So those two things are going on in the mind. Now, all of this took place in the time long ago and is so insignificant that I wouldn't mention it except that it serves as a good illustration of something that comes before us this afternoon in our text. When you look at Romans 4, beginning at verse 20, Paul says this about Abraham. No unbelief made him, that is Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says 
that no unbelief made Abraham waver. And the wavering that Paul refers to here in this passage is that hesitation, that stepping forward and stepping back like the little boy on the diving board that keeps one from having the confidence, the faith to act, or in this case, to believe the promise of God. Abraham, Paul says, had none of that wavering. He didn't have that hesitation. He didn't have that going back and forth. Now, just consider for a moment why it is that Paul says he didn't waver. It was because no unbelief made him waver. No unbelief made him hesitant. In the 19th verse of this chapter, Paul writes this. He that is Abraham again did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. John Calvin says this, Abraham did not try to find out by weighing the matter in the balance of unbelief whether the Lord was able to perform what he had promised. Uh, Robinson puts it this way. He says, he did not regard the discouragement of second causes. But what we have to understand is that the age of his body and the barrenness of Sarah, those were only temptations to bring Abraham to the place where he would come short. They were temptations to bring him to unbelief and thereby through that unbelief to wavering. This is the enemy of faith, unbelief. It's the enemy of all faith. Now, this is subtle, beloved, but it's really important to understand. And perhaps you can think of it this way. Was Abraham an old man at the time and as good as dead being about 100 years old? He wasn't? Was he younger than that? No, he was 100 years old, right? He was. And he was as good as dead because he was an old man at 100 years. That's true, isn't it? And this is really important, and you'll see why, why, why it comes out this way. This is really important. He, he is 100 years old. He is too old. That's the truth of the matter. And there's nothing wrong with his believing that reality. It's fine for him to know that, that he's 100 years old, and to admit that, that he's too old to have a child. In all their years together up to this point, had Sarah indeed been unable to bear children? Yeah, that was a truth. That was a reality. And now she was past the age of bearing. Yes, that's not, that wasn't untrue. That was true. And there was nothing wrong with Abraham believing that that was true. That's where this point is so important and it's so subtle. But it wasn't wrong for Abraham to say, you know, I'm 100 years old. I'm too old 
to have a child. Or for Sarah to say, I've been barren my whole life long, and now I'm past the age of childbearing, so I, I can't have a child either. Nothing wrong with them believing that and understanding it. Abraham was not being asked by God to suspend those truths or the reality that in the natural order of things, they could expect to have no children. He was being asked instead to believe in the face of those realities that with God, the God who made him and all things, that the God who cannot lie, the, the God with whom uh, there is sovereignty over all things, that with that God, all things are possible. He wasn't being asked to believe, no, you're really not as old as you think you are. And actually, you can have a child. He was being asked to say, yes, you're too old to have a child, but I can give you one. You see the difference between the two? He wasn't being asked to say, oh, maybe my wife who's been barren her whole life can be fertile now. He wasn't being asked to say that. He was being asked to say, no, that's the way she is, but God can overcome that. He was being asked to believe what God promised, that with God all things are possible. Even the promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations through the child he would have with Sarah, and that despite all the reasons why it could not be, it would be that in him, through his future son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all nations would be blessed. That's what he was being asked to believe. You can read just how God put this before Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. We don't have time this afternoon to look at that, but if you, when you go home, you might want to take a look at it. And it's this truth that with God all things are possible that Abraham believed and therefore did not waver, did not begin to commit and then draw back from, uh, from the hope out of unbelief. Just as he believed that he and Sarah could have no children at that time naturally, he believed that they could do so at the hands of the one true and living God. And that's the nature of faith, beloved. It doesn't expect you to suspend belief in what is true, but to expand your belief and to embrace the truth that concerning God and his grace to you through the Lord Jesus Christ, all things are possible. And this is where so many come short. The Lord doesn't expect you and me, for example, to suspend the belief and the knowledge that we're sinners who don't need to be saved, or excuse me, who need to be saved. No, on the contrary, he demands that we embrace that reality. You could hear it in that hymn, Rock of Ages, couldn't you? I don't have anything. All I am is a sinner, and I have to cling to the cross, because in reality, what I am is a sinner. But faith moves me to believe that God has saved sinners. By his promise through Christ. He demands that you and I embrace that reality, that you realize that it is so much more really than you comprehend, 
when you think about the fact that you're a sinner, that you are more of a sinner than you realize you are. We're to embrace that and, and acknowledge that reality. He calls on us to accept fully the reality that we are sinners. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Not the one who says, oh, well, I guess I'm not a sinner, and therefore I'm okay with God. But the one who says, no, the reality is I am a sinner, and in the natural order of things, I have no hope of salvation. But God has given me a promise that he has overcome that by his grace to me through the Lord Jesus Christ. David says in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I confess the reality of it. He doesn't ask men and women to stop believing that they're helpless and to begin pretending that they can somehow redeem themselves or work their way into God's good graces. He doesn't come to us and say, now you've been really bad, but if you reform and you work real hard at it now, you can get better and I will accept you. It's not what he says to us. He says to us, you're right, you are helpless. And there's no hope. There's no hope for you in you. And we have to embrace that reality, that truth. There's no way for us to gain what we've lost by our sin. And again, we're not being asked to suspend reality. We're asked to embrace it. No man or woman can ever be justified by works. We're not called on to, to, to deny that truth, but to accept it. He requires that you and I fully confess that this is indeed the reality of the situation, that we are hopeless and helpless sinners. And our only hope is the grace and mercy of God. Asaph says in Psalm 79, verses 8 and 9, Do not remember against us our former iniquities, lest your compassion Come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. You can think about how that could be reread. Don't remember our, uh, against us our former iniquities because we're trying really hard to be better. No, that's not what it is. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. Why? Because we're brought very low and we can't overcome these things. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, not because of anything we've done, but for your own honor and glory, and atone for our sins for your name's sake. What he requires, beloved, is that we extend these beliefs, this aspect of reality, to include him and his gospel. Am I a sinner? Yes. Am I helpless? Yes. Those things are true. And now I'm asked to believe that's also true, that God in mercy and love sent his son to die for me. 
You see, beloved, that it is those who deny God, those who deny him as God, who on every level ask for reality to be suspended, and that the obvious truth be denied. It's the world that requires you to call what is good evil and what is evil good. It's not God. It's the world who asks you to suspend reality. It's the world that asks you to look at the obvious purpose and design in the creation at all the evidence of God's attributes and existence and suspend belief and doubt that it's all true and believe that you somehow just came into being by accident. It's the world that asks you to do that, not God. Now, notice what strengthened this faith of Abraham's. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. As he was giving glory to God, the result was that his faith was growing stronger. They, the one followed the other. Glorifying God served to increase the strength of his faith. And here we return to the working of the mind and the heart. The higher Abraham's thoughts of God were, the stronger his faith was, the stronger it became. True and honest thoughts of God emboldened him to put his faith in God without wavering. The more he focused on who God is as God, the stronger he became in his confidence about what God promised. He didn't look at himself. He looked at himself. He saw an old man, nearly 100 years old, who couldn't have a child. So that's out of the picture. So what is my hope now? My hope is that God will give me this child and bring this redemption. Well, how, do I, how can God do this? And he reflected on who God is, on his veracity, his truthfulness, that God is a God who cannot lie, and his power and his ability to do all things. And he reflected on that back in the evidence of his own life. And then that growing faith kept him from wavering. Now, this might seem pretty simplistic and obvious, but for many people, it's the sticking point. The problem is described in, described in Romans chapter 1 and verses 18 through 21, where the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. <coughs> Excuse me. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor or glorify him. And that word glorify there or honor is the same root word as you have in Romans chapter 4, where it says that Abraham strengthened his faith by glorifying God. This is the opposite. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. And as a result, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. As Calvin says, there is indeed no obstacle, however small, 
and insignificant by which the flesh imagines the hand of God is restrained from working. That's an interesting way of putting. He says that there's no thing too small that men believe will keep God from being able to do what he says he will do. But the testimony of the word is just the opposite. There's nothing too big that can keep God from doing what he determines to do. And Abraham took this opposite course. He chose not to deny any of the truth that surrounded him, either in regard to his own weakness and sinfulness or God's righteousness and power. And the more he did so, the stronger his faith became and the more emboldened he was to trust God and his promises. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that David and Solomon, by faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Abraham focused on what he knew of God, that he was truthful and he was all-powerful. He had seen those very things ministered, or rather manifested, excuse me, in his own experience in life. And finding God to be all he declared to be himself to be, it was on this that he built his confidence. He didn't look and say, who am I and what am I and what can I do? He looked at God and said, who is he and what can he do? And then he built his confidence on that. John Calvin put it this way. The saints then, when a message is brought them respecting the works of God, the greatness of which exceeds their comprehension, do indeed burst forth into expressions of wonder. But from this wonder, they soon pass on to lay hold on the power of God. On the contrary, the wicked, when they examine a message, scoff at it and reject it as a fable. God's people, when they hear some testimony of who God is and what he's done, they grab onto that and they hold on to it and they use it to strengthen their own faith and their own confidence. Now just think about that in practical terms for a moment. You look around, you see the number of people who have found new life in Jesus Christ. And in the testimony of the church, they're all around everyone. We, we sit together, we worship together, and we, we confess our faith together, and we bear testimony to what God has done for us. And, and it's a, a united testimony in that sense. Now, what we do is we see that testimony, we hear that testimony, and we grab onto it to strengthen and encourage our own faith. So we hear of somebody who's been tried in some special way, and, and it's, it's been hard and difficult, but God has been with them, and he's shown his love to them, and they bear testimony to that. And the people of God grab on to that, and they, and they strengthen themselves by that and, and encourage their own hearts with that so that they can endure and move on by grace. The more we trust, the stronger our faith. The stronger our faith, the more we trust. And it's that trust that keeps us 
from wavering. We don't have to deny the reality of our sinfulness. We don't have to deny the reality of our hopelessness. None of that. We can admit to it all and then go further and embrace the promise of God. And look at the result in verse 21. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. John Trapp, the Puritan, says he was carried on full sail. All his sails were filled. And he's talking about him being carried on in faith by all his sails being filled with a testimony of who God is and going gallantly toward heaven. But what about his 100-year-old body? No, that didn't anchor him or hold him back or drag him back. He looked at what God had promised and what God was able to do and let that promise fill the sails. And in verse 22, Paul says this, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness because he put his faith in God as God and didn't let the reality of his age or Sarah's age and circumstances move him to be stepping back and forth as to whether God would fulfill this promise or whether God could do what he promised, but went fully forward and faith for it. And it was that faith that was counted for righteousness. John Calvin says, it becomes now more clear how and in what manner faith brought righteousness to Abraham. And that was because he leaning on God's word, rejected not the promised favor. He leaned on God's word. And leaning on that, he didn't reject what God was promising him concerning his soul, concerning eternity, concerning the coming of a Savior. He embraced it because he wasn't looking at himself, but he was leaning on God's word. Hodge says, to believe the divine declaration is therefore the highest honor we can render God. And to disbelieve them is a great offense to the divine majesty. And then verses 23 through 25 bring it down to our own hearts and circumstances. But the words it was counted to him or imputed to him were not written for his sake alone. But for us, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Did Jesus die on the cross? Yes. Did he bleed and suffer and give up the ghost or the spirit? Yes. Was he buried and in the grave for three days? Yes. Did he rise from the dead? And did he come, did he bring us with him? Yes. And that's what we're asked to embrace. Not just the reality of his death, but the wonder of his resurrection. And that's what faith is. It, it embraces the promises, the word of God. It leans on him. It doesn't deny the reality of sin or helplessness, but it embraces the promise of grace and love through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for this clear and beautiful explanation of the faith of Abraham. And Lord, we know that we are not saved because we are something less than sinners. But we are saved because we are sinners. And you promised to save the sinner. We know, Lord, that it's not a result of some effort on our part because we know that no one is saved by works and that we are helpless in ourselves. But we find help in the one who is strong, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith. And Lord, if there's anyone whose faith is wavering, who is struggling, I pray, Lord, that they would stop looking at the circumstances and look at you and your promise, who you are as the living God and what you have assured and what you have proved through the ages. Father, we thank you for the power and for the wonder of the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us all the faith to believe. We pray with your disciples, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And Lord, keep us from wavering by keeping our eyes fixed on you. For Christ's sake, in whose name we pray, amen.